As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode of the Malcolm Effect. It's been a while, been a while since I've had Deej on the show. Peace and blessings and greetings. Honestly, our guest today, I had the fortunate experience of hearing him lecture and followed by a Q&A at Cornell. So please welcome for the first and hopefully not the only time, Obi Egbuna Jr. Welcome Thank to the Malcolm you. Effect. It's absolute pleasure and honor, and I really Likewise. mean it sincerely. Deej, Deej, take it out, take it away. Right. So, with recognition of the work that you're doing, especially in the arts, based on sort of previous conversations we've had with some other speakers, most notably a really kind of good friend of the show, Two Black, who talked a lot about the way that in the moment of the George Floyd uprisings, a lot of radical action was moved into the arts. But in its kind of moving into the arts, he found that sometimes there was a sort of de-radical sort of effect here where the symbolic gestures were what was focused on and not the kind of material consequences of black lives and black subjugation. Mm. I wanted to ask in your experience, what are some of the opportunities and challenges in presenting radicalism through the form of the arts? Well, I've never done anything radical a day in my life and I don't think I ever will where we are on the path of revolution. And we define revolution the way Osage for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, Ghana's first president, did. He said, revolution is a revolt against an old order, but it is also a contest for a new order. The only challenge we have when waging resistance against our former colonizers and captors, this is the main thing we look for. We as Africans, the beneficiaries of our own resistance. You use George Floyd's the George Floyd uprisings is a criteria. I'm 53 years old, Sister Khadija, so I remember the Rodney King uprisings where we brought the United States to a complete halt. And not only that, that was in conjunction with the masses of people, of our people on the African continent standing up to military neo-colonialism. In the 1990s, you saw Musa Traore, who the CIA used to get rid of Modibo Keita in Mali destabilized. You saw two military regimes back to back in Nigeria overthrown. You saw Samuel Doe in Liberia overthrown. You saw um, Mengistu in Ethiopia overthrown by Ethiopians and Eritreans. You saw the CIA mercenary units in Angola and Mozambique, Rinamo and UNITA destabilized. But when it was all said and done, enemies were the beneficiaries. So even though the character of our resistance during the Rodney King rebellions looked like an extension of the Watts rebellions, where between 1965 and 1968 in North America, 289 cities were burned to the ground, when the smoke cleared, Bill Clinton was the beneficiary. Nobody benefited more from the George Floyd uprisings than Joe Biden. Three years after the Rodney King rebellions, we put 2 million people in the streets in Washington, D.C. for what's commonly known as the Million Man March. And 
we had an additional anywhere between four to eight million people who did not go to work and did not go to school that day. So it took the positive action character of the positive action campaigns that propelled the Convention People's Party to power in Ghana, led by Osage for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, what happened in Guinea with Sekouture and the Democratic Party of Guinea, what happened in the Congo with the Congolese National Movement and Patrice Lumumba, and what happened with Muammar Gaddafi in the September Revolution. But the only difference is, in Africa, we were fighting for power, where in the diaspora, the ceiling of our resistance is sometimes justice. And when you're just dealing with justice, you end up being manipulated, and all you do is express your displeasure with your oppression and dehumanization, where you don't necessarily go for the seizing of power. So it's very important that we recognize. And during the Million Man March, Bill Clinton came on television four days before and said he endorsed the message, but not the messenger. And that was used to catapult him back to reelection. So we just have to make sure that when we take to the streets, when we rise up in the prisons, when we rise up on high school campuses, college campuses, whatever the character of our resistance is, let we, the children of Africa, be the beneficiaries, not our former colonizers and not our former captives. Well, that was a that was a great introduction. Thank you so much for the power in your words. I really, really appreciate it. And this is something that myself and Mamadou have been trying to ha- trying to deal with. Obviously, we come from a younger generation and we find that the sort of long history of resistance, the lessons that can be learned from resistance, the way that oftentimes forms of resistance that we've taken part in, that we've seen our ancestors, those before us take part in, has been so easily captured by the elite to serve their own purposes. And I think in the current moment, we need some of that imaginative spirit. We need some of that spirit of resistance that you speak of to get people to recognize that in trying to wage these wars of you know, symbolic representation, thinking about justice and not power, we do end up losing so much. And I think the, the George Floyd moment was also a very important lesson in especially how this sort of capture of resistance happening happens. So thank you so mm-hmm. much. Sure. And it, it, was, it represents... Go ahead. I guess, Go ahead, Mama. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, no, no. no I was please saying, carry on. And it's a continuation because when people in the United States talk about naked police terrorism, depending on who you're talking to, they present it as though it's... A, a, a representation of the law or a representation of policy. It's a representation of culture. Police terrorism is it represents imperialist culture. Capitalist exploitation represents their culture. Their genocidal foreign policy represents their culture. As we're sitting here, as this year marks the 40th anniversary of the assassination of Maurice Bishop in Grenada, leader of the New Jewel Movement who went to Gray's Inn to study law in your neck of the woods and went back to Grenada and led the most impactful revolution in the Caribbean since what was done in Haiti in 1804 and Cuba in 1959. And the Reagan administration goes right into Grenada in front of the whole world, a nation of only 88,000 people, and they assassinate him in the manner that Patrice Lumumba was assassinated in the Congo in 1961. So these are not isolated incidents of of bad judgment. The police murder our young people every 28 hours in the United States, according to a study that the Malcolm X grassroots movement did. And we have more mayors than we've ever had before. And if you know anything about the political construct in North America, mayors have the same relationship to the police that presidents have to militaries. They are the commanders in chief. So every time you see someone like George Floyd 
slaughtered. Every time you see someone like Trayvon Martin slaughtered, every time you see somebody like Deontay Rawlings slaughtered, every time you see someone like Terrence Johnson, Oscar Grant, Sandra Bland, the name goes on and on. It goes on enough for you to know that it represents the cultural and moral fabric of the society. So and and um, so we're against them policing us in North American borders, but we're also emphatically against them policing us anywhere in the world. And in the 1990s, we felt that the fight against police terrorism was inextricably linked to their fight to police Africa, police Latin America, police the Caribbean, and any of the 125 places that we as African people call home. So this is cultural warfare. As a matter of fact, we just finished celebrating African Liberation Day this weekend, correct? So happy belated African Liberation to all of you who are going to be listening and let us also salute the mighty people of Eritrea who just had their 32nd year of independence on the same day, African Liberation Day in 1991, where they have the distinction of waging Mother Africa's longest protracted armed struggle in history. They fought for 30 years. Namibia fought for 24, Zimbabwe fought for 14, Angola fought for 14, Mozambique fought for 10, Algeria fought for eight, Eritrea fought for 30 years. And since we're sitting here with a, war, a woman warrior like Khadijah, we have to mention the fact that Eritrea has the distinction of having the highest level of women's participation in a guerrilla war in the history of the modern world, not just Africa. 33% of their guerrillas were women. So we know that the United States in particular, they feel it's their obligation to police the world. And whether they use the ballot, whether they use humanitarian aid, whether they use diplomatic strangulation in the form of sanctions, they seek to police the world and dictate to us how we should conduct our lives. And history obligates us to come together and stand up to all their might. And we're beyond speaking truth to power. We speak the truth about power so that we can begin to fight for power. Thank you so much once again for that inspirational Thank you, response. Thank you, honestly. I guess my question here is thinking about someone or yourself in particular, rather, who's involved in mm -hmm. organizing and you do you are involved in the community. What is your assessment of the political landscape as it pertains to black people right now? Oh, in the US? Uh, our relationship to the society. We are 43 percent of the homeless, even though we're only 12 percent of the population. We are the face of the prison industrial complex. Eight hundred of the eight hundred and fifty children of the 8,000 children that drop out of school every day, 850 children look like all of us on this platform. Gentrification, as it is called, we call it what it is, real life Lego. <laughs> For those of you who remember the Lego toys where they just set up things. So we're the most comfortable poor people on the planet. And because of that, we may not feel we identify with the African nations that have least developed country status, where out of the 46 that have that, and for your listeners that don't know what least developed country status is, it's when your economy has completely spiraled and you turn to the United Nations to take over your economy. Of the 46 nations in that predicament, 33 of them are on the African continent. Then, then they have another category called extremely poor nations. The only nations that are not in Africa are 80, the Solomon Islands and Afghanistan, and AT and the Solomon Islands are an extension of Africa. And at the moment, they are 409 million Africans on the continent that live on a dollar ninety cents a day. But 
in the United States, they charm us with their crumbs. So some of our people would rather be poor in the United States than stable anywhere else. So we take pride because of a narrative that excludes class is where we don't focus on exploitation. We don't focus on poverty or our perception of poverty is something that should be escaped, not something that should be eliminated. So we take pride in being comfortably exploited. But reality says we are part of a contingent who has the distinction, as Kwame Ture used to say, of being products of the richest continent on the world, but the poorest people in the world. So we don't compare degrees of poverty. We're out to eliminate poverty so we can claim, reclaim the wealth of Africa so the human resources can finally benefit from all our material resources. Thank you so much for that response. Well, and given the specifics of America today, given that, you know, we're trying to think about black liberation and what it means in the context mm -hmm. of North America, we recognize that there are some deep fissures between black people. And we spoke about mm -hmm. when you came to Cornell, you know, groups like ADOS and several other groups. My question is, when thinking mm -hmm. about organizing, we can have all this high theory and disagree on mm -hmm. points or theory, but when we're organizing with people and mm -hmm. black people in particular, how should we go about this when we have real differences um, with some of these people? I think that the work has always bridged a gap. This Thursday and Friday, Theater Company, the Mass Emphasis Children's History and Theater Company, we have um, a play and a video tribute before the play. We have a video tribute to Maurice Bishop, like I said, in Grenada. And we have a play called Y'all Understand What I'm Saying and it's paying tribute to the great Paul Robeson. And right now, as I talk to you, we have children in Kenya involved, children in Canada involved, children in Trinidad involved, and children all over the United States involved. And we have children that are going to be participating in the Paul Robeson play that are going to be doing it in the following languages. Mogamo, which we speak in the Cameroon, Lingala, which we speak in the Congo, Igbo, which we speak in Nigeria, Emarek, which we speak in Ethiopia, Tigrayan, which we speak in Eritrea, Patois, which we speak in Jamaica, Mende, which we speak in Sierra Leone, Shona, which we speak in Zimbabwe. We have an Ethiopian sister that's going to do the performance in Noesia. We have a young brother who has been raised between Colombia, South America and Washington, D.C., where for those of you who are paying attention to Colombia, because they have their first African woman vice president, Franca Marquez. In, in Choco, there are 11 million Africans in Colombia. So he's going to be saying, um, he's going to be participating in Spanish. We have some children in Burkina Faso that are going to be participating using the colonial language of French. So that's how we answer that. We think that when people talk about Pan-Africanism, it's usually the, talk, the valley of the talking heads who don't know what it's like to organize and don't have any engagement with people who have created vehicles with a Pan-African concentration to focus. So we'd rather show them than tell them. So when they see what our children just did, when they see what we did last year for the Day of the African Child, where we did a program and had children from Cuba in it, children in Haiti in it, children in Sierra Leone in it, children in Liberia in it, children in, with, from Trin, in Trinidad in it. That's how you show people. So like I said, when it comes to that, we can show you a hell of a lot better than we can tell you. But for those of them who are just exclusively preoccupied, or shall we say obsessed with North America, this is what we'll tell them. So the Zionist state of Israel is the enemy of the African world. So we know that Israel bombed Kemet in 1967 during the Six-Day War. 
Israel, by its lonesome, stood up in the United Nations and refused to recognize self-determination for Tunisia and Algeria. Israel supported German colonialism in Namibia, Portuguese colonialism in Mozambique and Angola, and British and Rhodesian colonialism in Zambia and Zimbabwe. Yet, there are 47 Israeli embassies on the African continent, 47 out to 55. We took a step in the right direction and suspended the observer status of the UN at the AU. They should be expelled. But while this is going on, Israel has been funneling, the Anti-Defamation League has been funneling police departments to occupied Gaza, the police department in Baltimore, where Frederick Gray was slaughtered, the police department in Detroit, the police department, the Capitol Hill police in D.C., police in New York, they all go to Israel to gain inspiration on certain techniques they can use to crush popular uprisings. So if they're concerned about that, they should focus on U.S. police departments going to Israel. We'll focus on Africa, but we'll bring those two things together. Asada Shakur, our beautiful sister, has been on the U.S. government's terrorist list for the, la the number one terrorist for over 20 years. She should come off that list. And the $2 million bounty that Homeland Security has put on her head should be lifted. Asada Shakur made her bones and struggle in North America and the New York branch of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. They should join us in that fight. For the last 23 years, the government of Cuba has been training U.S.-born Africans to come to Cuba to the Latin American School of Medical Sciences, trained for six years on the $250,000 scholarship program, and they come back to the poorest communities in Baltimore, the poorest communities in Chicago, the poorest communities in Los Angeles, the poorest communities in New York, New Jersey, Alabama, Mississippi, and they practice what they learned in Cuba, which is an extension of the work of Booker T. Washington, who started Negro Health Month in 1915 before he passed away and went to the ancestor world. And Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois did a sociological study called The Physique and Health of the Negro American in 1904. So they can't play that game with us. If they want to talk about a North American crusade where they support the, what we call the amputated narrative of the African experience, which is all we've ever gotten, where you cut us off from Africans and the rest of the Americas, cut us off from Africans and other parts of the diaspora, and cut us off from the mother continent, we have the challenge for them. We will specifically pick certain issues that focus on the dynamics within the geographical boundaries and parameters of the United States and challenge them to step up to the plate and deal with those things. While giving them a practical example of why we do things on a Pan-African scale, and if you show Tariq Nasheed what we're doing in mass emphasis, if you show Yvette Carnell what we're doing in mass emphasis, if you show Antonio Moore what we're doing in mass emphasis, and you show other people who have never organized a day in their life, who are, ci who are citizens of the Valley of the Talking Heads, what we're doing, none of them will say that that work doesn't have any value. They'll just say that they don't have the fortitude to step up and get it done. And at the same time, we won't antagonize them. We'll say, get to work in North America. Asada Shakur has been on that terrorist list too long. Send some kids to Cuba to be trained to come back to the hoods of North America and treat the sick. So they can't play that game with us. Thank you so much for that. That was incredibly powerful. Again, we've had a few run-ins with ADOS, myself and, and Mamadou. And I think 
what you say rings so true. There is so much radical work that happens. There is so much resistance that happens. There are so many opportunities and possibilities of that sort of internationalism for black folk and and, and really giving us the possibilities of our emancipation. Mm -hmm. And it very much seems as though the work that they're doing is is unimaginative, you know? I'm not going to comment on your work, but what I will say is they are things of a pressing nature inside U.S. borders. Like I said, Asada Shakur, for the sacrifices she made, she deserves all the entire African community in North America should rally behind her to get her off that terrorist list. And why is that important? Madiba Nelson Mandela was on the terrorist list till 2007, which means when they were moving him around like a, a parade float, supporting his elections, He's got more movies than Planet of the Apes movies and Superman and Batman movies, but they had him on the terrorist list all the way till 2007. So it shows you, but the only difference is they tried to assassinate Asada Shakur and the hostility towards her is because of where she is safe in Cuba and their hatred and their obsession with regime change in Cuba. So if they say that they walk her foot, they, they're walking her path. They're supposed to represent a continuation of what she represents. They should be part of that fight. And we all know how we feel about police terrorism. How can people who are just concerned about the North American landscape allow treacherous fascist police who the last thing they need is more inspiration to be barbaric. So you send them to the most violent nation on the planet to get tips, to get techniques, to get methods, and come back and inflict more damage on our community, they should be at the forefront of fighting that since they say North America is their domain. So we call their bluff. Absolutely. We call their bluff because we're, we're part of that fight while simultaneously dealing with Africa, simultaneously dealing with the Caribbean, simultaneously dealing with Europe. We don't accept the amputated narrative of the African experience ever. Absolutely. Absolutely. As a sort of child of Ghana myself, and with that sort of radical history of Professor Kwame Nkrumah, and with everything that I, you know, I'm, I'm from both Ghana and Burkina Faso. So, you know, the, the knowledge of Thomas Sankara, the sort of history of Nkrumah has been so central to my politics. Mm. But I find that, especially in this current moment, as I interact, especially with young Ghanaians, you know, I was born there, I spent half my life there, I speak the language. Mm. When I interact with young Ghanaians, their imagination seems to have been completely just eradicated. There is so much of the sort of toxic U.S. narrative of imperialism enmeshed. We have to the we have to connect you with the people. What if I told you, Khadija, that there was a school outside of uh, Takoradi called the People's School, and it's a mm-hmm. brother who came up through the organizational ranks with me, named Imole Seka. And he has been the principal at the school. It's a socialist modeled school. It's free for the people. And all Osage for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah's books represent the curriculum. They have a 100% graduation rate and a 100% acceptance rate to university. So imagine walking in a classroom and seeing fourth graders discussing consciencism, which he wrote in 1964. Imagine going down the hall and seeing third graders discussing neocolonialism, the last stage of imperialism, which he wrote in 1965, which the United States suspended $33 million of aid they were sending to Ghana till they saw the manuscript of that book. So that's going on. The one thing we... 
And imagine if I turn around right after that and I introduce you to a 24-year-old named Inem Richardson who has started a Thomas Sankara Center in Burkina Faso. The children that you're going to see perform for us on Thursday and Friday, they, they are part of that center. She went back to Ogudugu and set up a center in Thomas Sankara's honor for the children. We can connect you with them. The enemy wants us to think their work is not being done. That's their number one objective because since they feel they control the space of visibility and the only thing wrong with this generation, they only have one tactical flaw that I see. They put emphasis on visibility and nothing on impact. And we have seen too many movements, too many organized formations, too many organizational vehicles who have impacted the world that were rarely heard and rarely seen. And what a lot of talking heads do is they have all these platforms and all they're doing is exposing that they're not part of the work that's going on. And there was a time when we assembled, we made it, we made it, we maximized our efforts. The, the Fifth Pan-African Congress will never be forgotten because it was at that meeting that the demise of settler colonialism was planned and carried out. But now in 2023, when we get together, there you can call them what we need to do conventions. What we need to do is this. What we need to do is that. And the people who are doing it aren't even there because the people telling you what we need yeah. to do deliberately exclude those people. So you have a bunch of talking head conventions. You have a bunch of pseudo intellectuals flexing their intellect like bodybuilders flex their muscles. And that's why it appears that we are having problems. But quietly in different pockets at home and abroad, you have people doing work that cannot be described in words. It's so awesome. But the enemy's not going to bring attention to that work. They recognize their mistake from the 60s. My father got a chance to do his first play on BBC with Peggy Ashcroft. And then it ended up being Britain's submission to the First World and Arts Festival in Dakar. The next year, he's igniting the Black Power Movement and Black Panther Party in London. They'll never make that mistake again. Malcolm X was on Face the Nation, 60 Minutes. Dr. King was on Face the Nation, 60 Minutes. Kwame Ture was on Face the Nation. Imperialism will never allow us to use their vehicles again to showcase our strengths and our fortitude and commitment to liberation. They're going to do everything to make it seem like our movement has eradicated, eroded, and is no longer in existence. And they have an alternative, they've created something that we consider alternative resistance that's very watered down, that they control, that they finance, and they can use a little bit of our jargon, a little bit of our language, exert some of our energy and style, and have people mistaken us for them. Brother Mamadou is very concerned about those who practice plantation love in North America. We're equally concerned about the Pan-African masquerade, where you have certain people who may take on the last name of a freedom fighter from the past, but all they're talking about is the Pan-Africanizing of neocolonialism. You have people who, who, who beat on podiums and talk real loud. They beat on podiums like bass drums in a marching band. But every time you see them, they're always in front of a podium. You never see them at the forefront of executing any ideas. You never see them at the forefront of any projects. And all they do is come around certain issues 
that generate certain mileage so they can expand. They're interested in building their brands. They're not interested in building a movement. They're only interested in building their reputations at the expense of our movement. We've got them in the United States. They claim to be the voice of Pan-Africanism, but they've never spent a day changing U.S.-Africa policy, which is the biggest threat to the African continent in the United States. When it comes to work in those areas, they're conveniently absent. But every time you turn on social media, there they are flapping their gums. You go to Southern Africa, you see some of them with the big voices, but then you see that it's Robin Renwick, who's the battery behind their back. You see them stand next to Robert Mugabe one minute to get a photo op to expand their brand. And then they set up they set up splinter groups from traditional liberation movements. But you see, every time you see them, they're always in front of a camera. Off the cameras, you can't you can go to the nations where they live and ask the people what do they do besides give speeches. They give the loudest speeches at funerals, the loudest speeches at conferences, but when it comes to the labor, they are absent. Absolutely. Thank you so much for even awakening me to the fact that these forms of schooling exist in places like Ghana because as you say they are so removed from our view that oftentimes we don't know they, if they exist and after this definitely going to get more details I'm, I'm going to connect you because Ghana, which is, and, and you got to realize I'm they've invested back. They've, like, they've invested everything in a Kufa Ado that idiot was just in Baltimore in April again yep. he spends he spends a lot of time in the United States because He's in the pocket of a woman named Rosa Whitaker, who's the first woman to be a trade officer in U.S. history. And she's the one who wrote the African Growth and Opportunity Act. That's who he's in her pocket. And now the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has set up an African investment group. So you're, they're building on the pan-Africanizing of neocolonialism, which actually started in the 1970s. When Muhammad Ali and George Foreman, Ali born in Louisville, Kentucky, George Foreman born in Houston, Texas, Don King born in Cleveland, Ohio, organizes a fight in the Congo, and they go and take $10 million from Mobutu in blood money, the same Mobutu that slaughtered Patrice Lumumba and threw acid on his body in partnership with the CIA. So economically, People would consider that progress, but it validated the most wicked military neocolonialist leader the African continent has ever known. You can look at Jim Brown just died last week, rest in peace, a crusader in the fight to end violence we inflict on each other because of self-hatred. But in the 1984 interview with David Letterman, he talked about being on the board of directors of a security firm that was guarding the airport in Grenada. Remember, the Reagan administration invaded Grenada under the false claim that Grenada, an island of 88,000 people, were stashing Cuban and Soviet missiles that would be aimed at the United States, a nation at the time of 233 million people. What type of logical sense does that make? And that was what they used to justify Grenada. But Jim Brown financially benefited from the situation. Ray Charles is credited for being the first musician to refuse to perform before a segregated audience in Georgia. But then at the height of apartheid, he took $2 million to go and perform in Sun City with Frank Sinatra. So they have always used high profile Africans to champion the paradigm of neocolonialism and to champion. And Akufa Ado, you know what he did last year? 
he changed Founders Day, which has been Osage for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah's birthday, to when the United Gold Coast Convention was founded because his two uncles set up the first opposition party to Osage for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah and ran against him in 1960 yep. and worked with the British and the United States to overthrow the Osage for. And he had the audacity to change that day. African Liberation Day isn't even a national holiday. And of course, we know neo-colonialist African leaders removed liberation from the day, and they call it Africa Day. So the struggle and the warfare takes place on all different levels. And why would Akufa Ado salute the United Gold Coast Convention, which was only seeking colonial reforms, not the eradication of colonialism? So this is so that's why he is the face of pan-Africanizing neocolonialism. Everything that has pan-African yeah. character is not in our advantage. The Congressional Black Caucus in the United States, the 50 members of Congress that look like us, They've been working with the movement for democratic change that was created in 1999 by the Westminster Foundation for Democracy, the Blair administration and the Clinton administration to overthrow the government of Zimbabwe. That's a pan-African linkage, but it is not in the best interest of African people. And there are countless examples of linkages that are pan-African in character, but are to our detriment. So we have to say we're on a revolutionary Pan-African track. So when people say I'm a Pan-Africanist, and then when you see the practical example of what they're talking about, you want to run faster than Usain Bolt in the other direction. So it depends what it is. It depends what it is. But let's speak about, but let's speak about Pan-Africanism and speaking about revolutionary Pan-Africanism in the context of uh -huh. the continent today, we see all too often a rise in what can be seen as reactionary politics, let's say with the anti-homosexual mm -hmm. bill in Uganda and what's taking mm -hmm. place in Ghana and all of these things. What is a revolutionary Pan-African response to what really is a bolstering you, of right-wing conservatism okay. by, by you, the US, by US you know evangelicals? It's quietly emerged as the revolutionary issue that Africans all over the world mm -hmm. rally against, even the most reactionary amongst us, standing up for Cuba. Every neo-colonialist government in Africa votes against the blockade on Cuba. Every one of them. That's because of the masses of the people. Only the United States and Israel are in favor of that blockade. The worst leaders in Africa, because Cuba's got 4,000 doctors in Africa, I'm the external relations officer of the Zimbabwe-Cuba Friendship Association. Zimbabwe has a 97% literacy rate. The reason they have that is because between 1986 and 1996, 3,000 Zimbabwean teachers went to Cuba for training. And they came back and they became the core of the educational system in Zimbabwe. So while we know Cuba for defending Angola for, against CIA mercenaries, standing with us in Mozambique, standing with us at Guinea-Bissau, people haven't paid attention. So when you look at what their doctors had did fighting the corona pandemic, 57 brigades in 40 nations. When you look at what they did with Ebola seven years ago in Liberia, Guinea, and Sierra Leone, and the fact that not their 4,000 doctors in Africa not only treat the ill, but they point out they have the ch young students who aspire to be doctors who have no intention of continuing to brain drain and are going to remain in their nations. Those are the ones they train. So when we talk about investment in Africa, at a time where George Bush 
has the largest highway in Ghana named after him. He's a born again humanitarian now. At a time where Bill Gates, after raping the Congo of all its coltan, continues to pose as a humanitarian, a humanitarian. At a time where the Clinton Foundation has their claws in Africa, we need to create a resource pool to support Cuba's medical efforts on the African continent. I believe that that is the that, and that would be the biggest threat to the United States Agency for International Development who is the biggest threat to Africa's stability. Many people think it's the U.S. Africa Military Command, AFRICOM. To say you're against AFRICOM is to say you're against police terrorism in the United States. Everyone's going to do that. But until Africa crushes the humanitarian aid industrial complex, which is used to bribe us, and these neo-colonialist leaders mortgaging our future, but we have to have an alternative. That's nothing to be scholarly about. If we in Europe, we in the United States, we in the Caribbean, we in other parts of the diaspora create a resource pool and send medical supplies and other resources to the African Union and let them know this is for Cuban doctors. Let Comesa know this is for Cuban doctors. Let ECOWAS know this is for Cuban doctors. Let NAPAD know. Let SADC know. This is for Cuban doctors. We will break imperialism stranglehold economically in Africa because that would be a step in the right direction. Three years ago, Zimbabwe, Malawi, and Mozambique had a cyclone, Cyclone Adai. Y'all probably remember that. And the United States just came out and said, help Mozambique all you want. Help Malawi all you want. Be careful with Zimbabwe. Don't help the government, which is an extension of a policy they had after Zimbabwe reclaimed their land, the Global Fund, which was set up to deal with HIV AIDS and tuberculosis in Africa, they blocked Zimbabwe's applications for four years. And Zimbabwe has had the most significant decline in HIV AIDS in Southern Africa, where the pandemic is more, most impactful. So, and we raised 5,000 US dollars in 45 minutes at a church, but that was just a test. Imagine if every African church in the diaspora sent $5,000 monthly to the African Union to deal with the water crisis, where there are 500 million Africans without clean drinking water, the electricity crisis, where there are 490 million Africans without electricity. We would run all of those imperialist masking agents who pretend to be compassionate. We'd run them out of Africa overnight. So I would like to see us get busy and rally, start with Cuba because their track record in Africa cannot be challenged. It cannot be questioned. And then we'll go ahead and deal with the rest of those areas. As Akme Sekuture said, it is not the adaptation of political action to economic action. On the contrary, it is the use of economic activities for political ends. So we're not talking like Mo Ibrahim we're not talking like um, the rest of these folks who stuff their pockets while we are suffering. And we're, and all due respect to the African Union, we could care less about Agenda 2063 when we're suffering like hell in 2023. We got to get to 2063, and we're not going to be a neo-colony in 2063. That's what they're hoping for. How dare you entice us by saying we're going to have the largest middle class in the world by 2063 if things keep going the way they do. How many children must die every hour from starvation? 
Ghana, one month before Osajifo's overthrow, he built the Akasambo Dam, the first hydroelectrical dam in Africa. Yeah. And the and they and all of Ghana had electricity, and half of Togo and half of Benin had electricity. How can you explain that we were doing this in 1966 and in 23, 2023, there are half a billion people with no lights? Doesn't make any sense at all, but it makes all the sense in the world. This is what happens when you accept neocolonialism as your political gospel. We defeated military neocolonialism. Now we got to fight civilian neocolonialism and the pan-Africanizing of neocolonialism. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and speaking of Ghana, we see, especially in the political class, but I'm going to name Akufuado specifically, and how much he is capitulating to the West, how much he is privatizing resources, privatizing things like the Akusuko Dam, how we live in crisis. And I think about this all the time. I'm like, we have a hydroelectric dam. Yes. <laughs> like the power. Just sitting there, just sitting there because of him. And what it's been able to sustain. He's sitting there because of him. Yep. Exactly, because he's so hateful of the Osajifo. He doesn't want to, and you know the funny thing? Every leader since Osajifo has exploited Shirley Graham Du Bois' idea to bring a repatriate community home. But I have to say this, yeah. we, the U.S.-born African got Ghana looking like a historical black student, a college homecoming. Do you know that the day after Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois died, Maya Angelou, Julian Mayfield, Tom Feelings, Alice Wyndham, who I had a relationship with, she was the last um, repatriate, original repatriate to, to live, to lose her life. She, she, she transitioned about a year and a half ago. They marched on the U.S. Embassy in conjunction with the March on Washington. And their main protests were, battle cries were, no intervention in Cuba, no intervention in Vietnam. You will never see the current re people who are traveling to Ghana, going to Ghana like mm -hmm. gamblers go to Las Vegas and Atlantic City. They'll never march Quite on the US. They will not march on the US embassy. And Kwame Ture used to say his dream was urban rebellions everywhere. My dream is demonstrations by Africans at US embassies all over the world. Whether we come one, like James Meredith, or two million like we did in Washington in 1995. That That's the type of activity that I think that our projects and campaigns are gonna create. So on the artistic front, like for example, we're, we're trying to get Asada Shakur off their terrorist list. Every citizen of Wakanda should be part of that. But what do you have? If we try to talk to Lupita Nyong'o, she has to get permission from De Beers. Dene Gurira's mm -hmm. uncle is the director of international communications and the Ministry of Information in President Monongagwa's office in Zimbabwe. But she's never used the Wakanda platform to call for the lifting of sanctions on Zimbabwe. So this is why we're reintroducing Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson was making $250,000 a year off his artistry in the 30s and 40s but he put his career on the line to be part of the Council of African Affairs. He put his career on the line to be part of the Civil Rights Congress. He put his career on the line to use 20 languages, which he spoke fluently, to talk to the world about segregation, to talk to the world about lynching, to talk to the world about colonialism in Africa. He was told he would lose his career if he attended the Fifth Pan-African Congress. He showed up anyway. 
standing next to George Padmore, standing next to the Osajifo, standing next to Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, his biggest influence. He did all that. So before Colin Kaepernick, we had Paul Robeson. Before Muhammad Ali, you had Paul Robeson. And Paul Robeson was not a supporter of the struggle. He was directly involved in the struggle. So so that's why we're so that's why we're reintroducing him to especially to our young people. And our young people are going when you watch them. They're going to pay tribute to him, like I said, in 11 languages, because it doesn't matter what language you speak. Do you speak the language of resistance? Don't come up to me talking Igbo, but talk neocolonialism in Igbo or neocolonialism in Wolof or neocolonialism in Imatic or neocolonialism in Shona or neocolonialism in Debele or neocolonialism in French and Portuguese. We don't need to hear that type of language anymore. You know how you tell your children, watch your language when they use profanity. That's how we need to be when people come to us with neocolonialist ideas. Watch your language. Watch your tongue. Who you think you're talking to? Because we have to make, we have to make resistance the cornerstone of our narrative, not victimization. So running around here on social media, expressing, expressing your displeasure with everything, but not getting into trenches to work to do something about it is making a mockery of our of our history of struggle. And we have to make sure that our young people don't make a mockery. And part of the decolonization process, y'all ready for this? We must transform the island of black excellence into a training ground for African resistance. And if you can't handle that, hey. you better find a one-way ticket to Zamunda or Wakanda. <laughs> no, for real. I'm really, I, I'm wary of the time, but DJ, I know you had a thought. I want to hear that thought. No, deep, I mean, it, it wasn't, it was, it's been answered. It's literally how we resist the neocolonial okay. narratives, especially with this year of return forms of repatriation, which are just neocolonialists. And, you know, I think another thing that doesn't oftentimes get recognized in this new sort of, you know, vacationization <laughs> of Pan Africanism is the effects it has on these local communities, right? There was a history of connection with local communities that now is completely missing. And any critique of the types of tourism that is happening, especially in places like Ghana, especially in places like Accra, gets viewed as an antagonism oh, bless, towards bless you, the Bless you, Sister Khadijah. Maurice Bishop said, you cannot claim to have self-determination if your nation looks like imperialism's backyard. So if I only, because, mm. and remember in Grenada, they had 700 students out of the U.S. studying medicine for free, being trained by Cuban doctors. And he said, if you have prostitution in your country, if you have blue collar crime in your country, what do you look like appeasing to visitors and not dealing with the needs of your people? Having fancy hotels, casinos, mm -hmm. cinemas, and then right down the street, one mile down, people don't have water, people don't have electricity, people don't have health care, people don't have education. So, and this is, and and what Maurice Bishop said when he came to the United States, he said, Grenada is the most dangerous socialist revolution in the Americas because I'm English speaking and nothing I say to you gets lost in translation. He was 39, just like Malcolm X was when he was assassinated, February 21st, 1965. He was 39, just like Martin Luther King when he was assassinated, April 4th, 1968. And in four years, 
the people in Grenada had free health care, free education, free housing, and their women's empowerment program was the model for African nations, predominantly African nations in the Americas. And keep in mind, I keep saying the Americas because we're telling the plantation lovers that they can give the imperialists their definition of America back. North America, South America, Central America, Latin America, the Caribbean, all the way to Canada is the correct definition because we love those Africans and all, we love all 225 million Africans in the Americas. And we're equally as concerned about them. So when the Reagan administration and Bush and under the guise of George Bush, the ex-CIA pig he was, when they put crack cocaine in South Central Los Angeles to get resources to dismantle the Sandinista revolution in Nicaragua, which has the largest African population in Central America, I'm equally concerned about crack users in South Central as I am revolutionaries in Nicaragua that they want to exterminate. So, so looking, and I remember in 1988, I was a college student and we took a class at the University of the District of Columbia called Black Politics. And the teacher said, what are you going to do your term paper on? I said, this is the fifth anniversary of Maurice Bishop's assassination. And remember, Jesse Jackson is running for president. Doug Wilder's trying to become the governor of Virginia. And she said, why not focus on that? I said, because everyone else is. And we want to let the imperialists know that their definition of America is so white supremacist that Hitler and Mussolini would be envious if they were still on, in, on the planet. So we have to give them that back. And so we're going to reintroduce Maurice Bishop to our community the same way Thomas Sankara has been re reintroduced. We did a play about Thomas Sankara and Osage for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah 10 years ago. We, I mean, our list of plays, I didn't get a chance to go into that today, but because I wanted to focus on the one we have this week, paying homage to Paul Robeson and paying homage to Maurice Bishop. But this is consistent with us. Khadijah, we just did a tribute to the Osajifo last year. We did a poem called Ghana Calls, which Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois wrote as a tribute to him. And we had our children recite it. Wait till you see the video. So this is the type of work we do with the Mass Emphasis Children's History and Theater Company. We also have the Mass Emphasis Positive Action and Creativity Youth Brigade, where we look at the skills that the children have so they can develop projects centered around their skills. Because if you go back to our golden age of resistance, the great organizers had a skill. Emil Cabral, who was assassinated 50 years ago by the CIA and the Portuguese, he was an agronomist. Robert Mugabe was a lawyer. Herbert Chitepo was a lawyer. Catherine Dunham was an artist. Maurice Bishop was studying law. My father was an author. He was a teacher. So most of our revolutionary fighters have skills and they look to harness and enhance those skills so those skills can help them reach the masses of our people. So just being on a soapbox all day, pounding on the podium with no program, with no type of real substance, that's not going to cut it. And some of these people, you know what? When they die, we should make their caskets in the form of a podium and bury them standing up. Because <laughs> you know, every time you see them, they're behind the podium. And I'm like, how can you organize when you're running around talking all the time? I, I can't figure that out. But our people, both on the continent and in the diaspora, we've always been suckers for a good speech. And a person doesn't even have to do any work. They can just run their mouth all the time. And I'm old enough 
I've worked in like I work with all three liberation movements in Zania, South Africa. I don't remember some of these people that you see running your mouth all the time. I don't remember them. I don't remember them at all. And then I'm looking. I'm like, you take a photo op with President Mugabe. You're on the radio. You're you're in front of a microphone every time we see you. Why don't you organize a demonstration on the U.S. and um, British embassy in Zania, South Africa, calling for the lifting of sanctions on Zimbabwe? You, you, you're, you're a product of the struggle there. Nelson Mandela is a recipient of the Jose Marti Award, Cuba's um, highest honor. So is President Mugabe. Won't you go and march in front of the U.S. Embassy and call for the lifting of the blockade? You choose to be a showboat. You choose to be a diva. You don't really want to get in the trenches and deal with the issues that can ignite our resistance because you represent the alternative to the resistance. Then you have the ones in the United States. Every time you look up, they talk about they're the face of Pan-Africanism. They're the voice of Pan-Africanism. If you gave them a sheet of paper to write their Pan-African service, they couldn't complete a damn paragraph. I guarantee you that. <laughs> I think the funny thing is... And they choose not to. They don't want, they don't want to be... They, they want to play little league. They don't want to come into the big leagues. They don't want to. No, facts, but I'm. Thank, thank you. you so much. This has been a truly insightful. So, real no, quickly, if, I'm, if, people want, if, if people want of course, of course. to the performances, the first one we're doing for school children. So, it's at 1 30 East Coast time in the United States. We'll You can um, send a request for an invite to at J R E G B U N A at Twitter. The Instagram is at O-B-I-E-G-B-U-N-A-1-5. And the email, for those of you who are old timers like us, because email is kind of prehistoric in the social media world, but we're at O-B-I-E-G-B-U-N-A-1-5 at gmail.com. And um, yes, so we, um, so please, so you can come and watch our labor, come and watch our service, come and watch our execution of our idea as opposed to trying to figure out when you're going to hear us speaking again. And as a matter of fact, we don't do interviews unless we have work coming up or it's in the scheme of discussing some work we're doing at that moment. We never come on any platform and pontificate. That is a violation of the tradition of resistance. So thank you all so much. I hope we no, met your... thank you. And this is why I like speaking I, to organizers. I hope, I hope what we did is meet your expectations. I mean, I, we hope what we shared met your expectations. Exceeded. And, beyond. Beyond. And, 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 and Khadija Mamadou will tell you we're going to stay in touch. And I'll link you with my comrades as early as tomorrow. Yeah. Just reach out to me. Please. Okay. okay. Brilliant, people. Yeah. Peace out until next time. Take long care. live Maurice Bishop. <laughs> long live Paul Robeson. Long live the Eritrean people. Long live the Cuban people. Long live the African fighting spirit that is going to be to determine whether we are free or remain oppressed. Thank you. All right. Peace out. Thank you so much.